0: Welcome to another episode of the 42 to Doomsday podcast. I'm Rob and I'm Mark and after the positive response to our interview with Aaron Challenger regarding his discovery and work on the immense collection of audio visual material dating back to the early 1970s found in in suburban Melbourne late in 2022, Mark and I were keen to speak with the person who took up the challenge of collating and including that collection into a series of university projects. To that end, we are delighted to have with us that very person, Professor Jason Bainbridge, the Executive Dean of the Faculty of Arts and Design at the University of Canberra. A regular commentator on popular culture in the Australian media, Professor Bainbridge has also published widely on media culture, merchandising, licensing and popular representations of law. The Adelaide Festival of Ideas said in its bio of Professor Bainbridge that he occasionally finds his previous experience as a stand-up comedian very handy. Jason, (laughs) welcome to the podcast. And has your sense of humour helped you cope with a massive task of collating this collection?
1: I think it has. Hello, Rob. Hello, Mark. Yes, I think the, the sheer volume of material means that you have to have a very good sense of humour, I think, to think that you're actually going to get through it in your lifetime. I think it's <laughs> okay.
0: When Aaron contacted you, did his uh, word picture adequately describe the size of what you were about to take on board?
1: No, I don't think it did. <laughs> I
0: mean, he used
1: words like vast and volume and massive. It wasn't enough to really convey the sheer number of tapes and recordings that, that were part of the collection.
0: Now, we are a, a Doctor Who podcast, so we're going to torture you slightly with some... Some uh, questions about your uh, your introduction to the show before we move on to the real reason we've got you on, Jason. Tell us about your first Doctor Who experience
2: when you first became aware of the programme and when you made that journey from casual watcher to a dedicated fan.
1: It was really because of my dad. My dad was a fan of the show, so as it is for a lot of Doctor Who fans, I think it's some of my earliest memories are of um, things like the Green Death and the Ark mm. in space and the Sea Devils coming out of the water, which I think is a classic one for for a lot of people. So. It really was that kind of um, tradition, just being part of the ABC with that regular nightly schedule. And it was something my dad and I would go and watch together. And that's really where it all started. And then, of course, you got the discovery that there's all these target novelizations, and suddenly you can read about all of these episodes you'd never seen before. And then moving into things like when when the five doctors were screened and stuff like that. So it's always been a part of my life that way, and it's always something I've I've kind of kept up with too. So I've you know dipped in out of the, the Doctor Who um, magazine over the years, and certainly was incredibly excited with the, with the revival, and and have very fond kind of place based memories of where I've seen Doctor Who too over the years. So it it kind of becomes part of your personal history as well. I think of thinking where you were when you saw you know the Chris Eccleston Doctor on screen or when you finally got to, to see some of the second Doctor kind of episodes you always heard about but had never seen because the ABC wouldn't replay them and what, what was left of them. So I think from, from that point of view, it's it's always been a part of my life and I've, it's hard to think of, you know, life without Doctor Who in many respects.
0: Jason, in terms of what you currently do now, you know, with your examination, I suppose, of popular culture, was Doctor Who that gateway to, to, to a, a vaster field of uh, of that sort of thing? or
1: I think it was a couple of reasons a few people have said this over the years i mean doctor who is one of if not the most research television shows that was ever made i mean there's just so much mm. information you can find about the production of it let alone you know as, as a kid poring over the Doctor Who technical guide and all the kind of spin-off books that would give you all the details and the different types of Daleks and things like that. But particularly um, when you think of like the unfolding text and and books like that, Doctor Who was one of those early examples of television being treated seriously, and maybe a little too seriously at times, but, but seriously by academics. So in, in that sense, It was a series that obviously I loved and loved to watch, so it it helped me develop a, a love of television particularly and media, but also it showed that there was this richer world of TV research out there, which is quite exciting. And over the years, particularly my teaching, Doctor Who's featured quite largely because it's also one of those common cultural touchstones for a lot of students. I mean, basically, when you've got something that's run that length of time you know you can refer to it and students in the class will have an awareness of Doctor Who, even if it perhaps isn't a deep appreciation. And, and that's been something over the years. I remember talking about like discourses of the Daleks and lightning Daleks to TV cameras and things like that and the evolution of the Daleks being similar to the evolution of technologies. It's a great sort of common language with which to engage the students because often their parents knew Doctor Who and they, they know an iteration of Doctor Who.
2: You don't make the students watch it in class?
1: No, not as much. Funnily enough, a few of the the revival series, we have used discrete episodes of... At times to highlight various concepts, but the older series not as much.
2: Can you give us an example of some of those episodes you showed to the students to sort of explain some of those concepts you're talking about? I'm
1: gonna disgrace myself by forgetting the names of a couple of them, but um certainly a few of the Dalek episodes have been great. I mean, the um return of the Daleks in that in that Dalek episode mm, yeah. uh, was a great example, like of building tension and kind of mm. ratcheting up that that suspense. But there was that that episode which is the fans don't love that much, I know, but it was a a good example of kind of media and media control, which was the one um, on station. The long game. Yes, the long game. We did use that a couple of times, uh, for examples, and I think that that worked well because a lot of that, particularly the Professor T Davies kind of era of Doctor Who, really was reflecting on technology and media and and change, and it was quite self-reflexive. And, of course, you know, you're always looking for interesting hooks to talk about media change and media power and media control and you know a Doctor Who example is often more lively than than kind of talking about Rupert Murdoch Um, perhaps perhaps slightly less horrifying but um, (laughs) lively to engage the students I think in that way so they were there are a couple of the, the modern episodes that we that we use and even, um, you know, talking about like SatNav and stuff like that with uh, the and stratagem and stuff like oh, that. Yeah. There was a few good examples and, and that kind of carried through the Stephen Moffat era too, but but it was helpful to talk about media and technology in that way.
0: What is it, do you think, about Doctor Who that provides such fertile ground? Uh, is, is it more uh, capable of sustaining... You know, a, a subject like you know what you've taught, then say something like I don't know Babylon Five or Star Trek or or even something in the comics in, in, in you know Marvel or, or DC or any of the independent comics that are out there.
1: I mean, look, all science fiction, of course, reflects on on the present day, but I think. Doctor Who actually being set off and particularly in the revival series in in contemporary London was quite helpful for making the um ordinary strain in a weird way, almost a David Lynch type of way, but putting it through a science fiction filter. So making us think about broadcast technologies, for example. I mean, I mean the, the science was bad, but that notion of, of the Daleks when they were in um was it New York in the in the 30s, I think it was, and they're actually able to broadcast their DNA. So that that then gives you a springboard to talk about. What is broadcasting? How does that work in that way? Talking about, um, you know, uh, internet technologies and and kind of evolution in that way. So I think it's it's that kind of relationship to the contemporary age that you don't get as much in Babylon 5 and Star Trek. It's all metaphor in Star Trek and Babylon 5 because it's set in... in a a projected future, whereas Doctor Who, you're actually in the current age. So you've got the metaphorical layering of the alien or the monster of the week or things like that, but often it's speaking to something in a contemporary setting. And I mean, you know, as you you guys both know, I mean, that goes back to the the Green Death and and kind of, you know, all sorts of of, of, um, monsters as metaphors in that way. And I think that's where Doctor Who has been kind of a pioneer that latest series like Buffy and, and that was celebrated for kind of using the monster as metaphor, but Doctor Who was doing it a lot earlier and it makes it relevant, I think, to the students in that way. And I think the other thing we we kind of almost miss now is just how much of an event Doctor Who um, was with, when, with that revival. I mean, it was just a, a massive, massive success. And I remember that kind of weekly iteration on the ABC. I was, I was teaching in Tasmania at the time and, you know, there was that real excitement week to week of what was going to happen on, on, um, on Doctor Who. And that was shared amongst the students. It was shared amongst the staff. There was that real sense of a, of a cultural moment, I think, with that revival of Doctor Who, which, despite the, you know, the waxes and wanes in quality, I mean, you know, one thing that, that Russell T Davies did so well, and I think it's exciting to see him come back is that he made that really event television and I'm hoping that we can see Doctor Who scale those
0: heights again. Of all the modern showrunners, Russell T Davies, uh, the way he approached the series in his first uh, run sort of provides that material that you've, that I'm sure you've utilised uh, in, in teaching. Would that be right? I mean, he, he has that background. I mean, if you watch say, the Second Coming, it's the, it's the effect of the return of Christ to modern day. I mean, and the modern series his his co- focus and concentration on you know people living ordinary lives in in modern day London sort of seems to indicate that that is well that's a that's a an approach that is very popular with the viewing public.
1: yeah I mean he made it relatable i mean he obviously talked about the the kind of buffy model as, as informing that too but just the the kind of clever production decisions he made and as we know some of them were were kind of forced, I think, behind the scenes by by what rights the BBC had at the time. But I mean, not opening with the Daleks was just such a great idea because it built up the Doctor again as a character. Those nods to the past, with obviously bringing back Sarah Jane and Canine and, and things like that, but never it never felt like fan service. It was a nod, and he was able to kind of maintain that balance between you know providing the, the references the past, but also then providing a new dimension on these characters. For a current audience. I mean, excitingly, you can have fans that have never gone back further than the Christopher Eccleston era, but then you've got this generation of fans that go, oh, wow, there's this whole wealth of material I didn't know about. And I think that's the sign of a terrific revival and a really great showrunner that you can maintain that interest
0: week to week. Before we move on to the material itself, just so that uh, our listeners have a better sense of of the sort of work and teaching that you do, tell us us about media studies. Tell us about the sort of teaching that you've done. What's it all about?
1: I've always taught into um, media and communication and and journalism to a degree as well, but my great passion and interest in in research has been around pop culture and um, pop culture in in comics and, and film and TV and how that really can help us to think about the current world we live in. So it's it's treating pop culture seriously, I suppose. That's not taking the fun out of it or the pleasure out of it, but it's very much that kind of notion of pop culture holding a mirror up to our present culture and using that popular format to reach the largest uh, audience that it can to tell interesting stories about the current age that we're in. So that's that's really been the, the focus of my kind of academic journey and across the way of you know, um, sort of taught and and researched everything from the Beaconsfield mine disaster in Tasmania through to Pokemon and, and the sort of entrance of Pokemon Go in that climate, through to the, the incredible rise in in superhero cinema. So superheroes moving out of comic books and into the kind of pinnacle of pop culture that they are at the moment. So it's been a very rewarding kind of journey to see that that kind of appreciation for pop culture and what it can do at the same time as having a lot of fun with it. And I think I very much ascribe to um, one of the academics in the field, Henry Jenkins, who talks about the notion of the ACA fans, so that academic who is also a fan and how you balance that relationship and they don't need to be mutually exclusive. You can be a fan of something. We'd say that some kind of literary studies teachers are fans of Shakespeare, for example, but that doesn't stop you having that larger academic interest in terms of what is this saying about the culture? What is this saying about uh, where we are in our society at the moment? And I think that that interest in pop culture as you say, it was very much driven from, from Doctor Who at an early age, but it's carried through all of those different iterations. So even now being a dean, I, I kind of still have a foot in, in the water of looking at um, what popular culture is telling us and, and equally how we can help our creative um, producers, our artists, our filmmakers, our screenwriters, et cetera, to um to be the best they can be in the current funding environments.
0: What do you think that popular culture says about how people are... Today in the modern era, I mean, some people say we've come out of COVID, and we, we, you know, we've had economic shocks over the last ten or fifteen years. How do you think those real-world uh, impacts on people have impacted popular culture and people's uh, embrace of it? Because, I mean, just from outside looking in it seems like that popular culture has, has grown and grown and grown in the last 15, 20 years, and it, it, it's almost like a secular religion now as, as observed religion falls away. Yes. We've got people going in, in their tens of millions to see the latest, you know, the Avenger movies, for instance, which are a mm. huge cultural moment, I suppose.
1: Look, I think you're absolutely right. I mean, certainly, and we saw this particularly during the, the COVID years, and I know it sounds like I'm putting them in the past and COVID is still very much with us, but I suppose the lockdown years, for want of a, a better term, I mean, we saw an incredible resurgence in nostalgia and people kind of looking at escapists. And I don't mean that in a kind of necessarily bad sense. Um, obviously, it was a very difficult time, but an escapist culture in terms of returning to those kind of cultural touchstones, which meant a lot to them, whether that was kind of, you know, a 90s sitcom or Doctor Who. I mean, there was a great example, wasn't it in, in England, of the Doctor Who kind of viewing parties and stuff like mm. that that were happening during that time. So... There's been enormous resurgence in, in nostalgia um, for people, and that even tracks through to things like um, collectibles and eBay, where we've seen you know the prices of, of nostalgic items sort of increase in value during that time, as people have wanted perhaps to connect to a time which was better than what they're currently in, or to connect to a sense of stability and certainty that these these franchises can provide. But I think that notion of escapism over the last um, few years has become incredibly influential in in terms of what Hollywood um, is greenlighting now and things like that. I mean, you know, the drop in interest in in, in other forms of adult cinema, for example, in favour of blockbuster after blockbuster after blockbuster, and I love the Marvel films, I'll, I'll say that straight out, but it is a concern that that push towards escapist popular cultural narratives is at such an extreme that it is hard to get some other other films greenlit now and other other series greenlit as well. So mm. kind of have a, an embarrassment of riches on the one hand, but then a, a lot of revivals, um, a, a great focus on franchises, on sequels, perhaps at the expense of original IP. And I think that's a shame. I think, you know, one of the things that we, we can learn from, from popular culture is that we need um, that original IP to become the next... Um, the next thing, the next thing, the next thing. So I think you know that's that's always been one of the great things with Doctor Who is that each each episode is kind of a, a new location, a new world, a new chance to in, engage with different people in a different setting. And obviously the Doctor Who spin-offs have led to that too. That that you know we need more of that original IP as well, um, sort of sort of filtering in. So I think there's the the double-edged sword. If that kind of answers your question, I think people have been looking at that escapist or nostalgic kind of rush from popular culture but that's meant the original IP has dried up in a lot of ways and that's a real concern. I think the flip side too is that a lot of the people greenlighting um, popular culture now are of a similar age to us and, and probably some of your audience as well that, um, you know, that they have a great love for these old series and want to bring them back and want to sort of experience them in, 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 in new ways. And I think that, again, that can be a double-edged sword. You've got a mm. showrunner like Russell T Davies who can do that very well, whereas we've seen other revivals that perhaps haven't hit the mark quite as well because it's all been fan service or tried to update too much to a to a yeah. modern audience and lost along the way.
0: Yeah, I'm, I'm interested in your thoughts on, just because we're an Australian podcast, we might as well uh, talk about the Australian landscape in terms of film and television. Briefly, I suppose, wh- where do you think the Austral- Australian film industry is at the moment and maybe television as well? Uh, because obviously, I, I, you know, your point about the blockbuster, af- blockbuster after blockbuster sort of sucking the oxygen out of the um, out of the industry and smaller independent movies not really being able to see the lot of day or have any, you know, sustained success, I think really s- strikes home. So. Australia is a small uh, industry, I suppose, despite you know the influx of American money to film over here and, and all that sort of thing. Where do you think the market is at the moment, the industry is at the moment?
1: Yeah, it's interesting. I mean, there's been a lot of discussions around that lately. I mean, one of the exceptions to that that kind of blockbuster rule, of course, are smaller genre films, largely horror films, which, which um, have bucked all the trends. So, I mean, horror films still perform very well um at the cinema there's still a kind of shared experience of going out they'll often be picked up by streaming channels as well they're they're relatively cheap to make um and they're they're, they can be you know sort of the 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 best example of independent film in terms of turning a profit at the moment so i you know the the australian um cinema scene's always been an interesting one because we've always sort of gravitated towards kind of the the art house um film which tends not to have traveled that well to be honest because um Australia, obviously, is an English-speaking country, so we can't really compete in a number of the international film awards that, that other countries can. But where we've had our biggest success has been with genre cinema, and I think in some ways, you know, that's that's the future for us. I mean, you think of what, what was referred to as the 10 BA cycle of Australian films, which was that that tax cut that people got in the 80s to produce films like Razorback, like Mad Max, even like Crocodile Dundee. And it's those type of genre films that were quite small, independent pictures that have travelled really well, and, of course, of George Miller and others. So that, that's one way I think the industry could go again. Um, Sissy was a good example of that, a, a horror film that was produced in Australia recently that did quite well internationally as well and um, actually was, was produced in in Canberra, so I can speak to that being based in Canberra. But um, that was a good example of, of a genre film that way. The other option, of course, is the kind of Baz Luhrmann is big, blockbuster um, films, often with maybe an American lead or two, but using Australian crews. So, you know, this is where Australia has benefited in the past from, you know, providing kind of the background for the Matrix films or the Star Wars prequels or things like that. You lose that sense of Australianness, but you have quite a healthy industry because you, you're using Australian crews, Australian special effects. So there's a couple of ways we could go. But personally, and maybe I'm a bit biased to um, being quite a fan of horror films, I think sort of the, the genre film would be a great way for the Australian uh, cinema to go, and I think we can do that. And even if you if you call films like The Dry, the Eric Banner mystery film, the example of a, of a genre film being a mystery-based film, I think that you have some great examples there and that could travel really well and be quite healthy for the industry.
0: I recently picked up in the last few days from a... A charity shop, a, a book on published in the late 70s or very early 80s, uh, based on some cinema paper articles that looks at the resurgence of the Australian film industry in the 70s. And I was just flicking through it, and you see, you know, movies like Don's Party. And it, it covers the different genres that you know of the film industry, so it's Don's Party from '76 and, and Patrick and, yes. and and all those sort of things. So uh, you know, a classic horror film from that from that particular era, uh, Picnic at Hanging Rock. So there clearly was a golden age. A golden age of sorts in the in the 70s, and one hopes that something similar is coming up or around the corner for Australia or Australian cinema at least.
1: Yeah, very much so, and I think that that kind of genre cinema can operate very well at the moment because obviously it is such an uncertain time in cinemas in terms of streaming, in terms of what will bring audiences in. That you know, a lower cost film that's well-produced, that has a good hook, and often um, the kind of genre film like Picnic at Hanging Rock, like Patrick, do have those very strong hooks to bring in an audience, they will perform well. So I think there's a real opportunity for Australia. It just depends on whether we get too hung up on trying to just produce one genre of film and I think it's more exciting if we can have that diversity and I think that diversity of genre films would be would be a great way to be competitive in that space and certainly I know that the funding bodies in Australia are looking at different ways of funding films along that way too
2: because even in the 90s there's some great films like Muriel's Wedding and Priscilla Queen of the Desert as well when we do do hits we do them really well, and they do export extremely well. So those smaller ones just don't, unfortunately, just don't get that um, visibility, and especially when they're being swarmed by <laughs> at the moment back-to-back, wall-to-wall superhero films.
1: Yeah, exactly. And I think I think the other avenue for Australian films too is is in streaming. I mean, that's that's where we've seen um, some good pre-sales um, that help the production of films that they kind of sell the streaming rights quite early on, and mm. that. Where you're you're getting multiple channels and and more people actually you know um, looking at at the, at the product, so I think that does allow for some smaller films because arguably that's where a lot of the um, more adult cinema in terms of of dramas and and, and non superhero non genre films are going is streaming. So I do think there's a good um, good aspect in terms of streaming for Australian films too internationally and that's where being english language i think helps us in some ways to to get onto those larger streaming services but certainly we've seen some successes lately with with amazon and stan locally obviously and netflix as well um Mm. of people selling content on there and that that helps i mean you know that's that's the other interesting thing of course is whether we're talking about film as in is in cinema anymore or whether it is actually in the in the kind of streaming space so lots of opportunities but i but yes it's an interesting time i think Look, if we were having this discussion in in L.A., there'd be similar discussions there around, you know... What's happening with these TV shows are commissioned and we film a season and then they're dropped and never aired to get the tax break. I mean, there's a lot of interesting <laughs> things happening at the moment as people try to navigate this new environment. So it's not just Australia that's that's struggling to find its its place with the new technologies.
2: And maybe the days of the blockbuster instantly recouping money are gone because you look at the Shazam it's come out, that's sort of they're saying it's bombed and the Ant-Man film, maybe they're more slow burners in terms of recouping the money now because people just go, I'll just wait for streaming.
1: Yeah, I think that's it. I mean, it's also too early to tell how much people have got used to that during the COVID era as well. Some, mm-hmm. um, You know, so much was made available online. Um, it, it is that kind of reluctance. I mean, certainly we've seen that anecdotally. I don't think there's there's firm evidence yet, but we've seen it anecdotally with Disney Animation, for example, that Disney Animation has not performed as well um, theatrically since COVID because people yeah. got used to seeing, you know, Disney animation on a streaming service. And, in fact, when you've got very high-quality animation like, you know, Guillermo del Toro's Pinocchio on Netflix and stuff like that that is, is made for streaming, I think that throws certain genres into question of how they'll perform at the cinema. And certainly, you know, there's a, there's a lot of blockbuster films now. So, you know, some of them like Shazam, you know, aren't going to do well, and there's that kind of feeling that if it hasn't made it in the weekend, it's not going to make it. But I think you're right. Over time, when it comes to the streaming services, we'll see that that revenue build and things like that. Although I must say, I had no interest in, in Shazam too. I I, I like Helen Mirren and Lucy Liu, <laughs> but. It just looked odd with them walking around with big staffs, waving at things, and CGI dragons popping up. So I've got to say I wasn't I wasn't front row for that when it came out.
2: No, I think there's a bit of superhero film fatigue at the moment. No matter how they spin it, I think it's as you said. I think people are looking for different sort of IP at the moment, and uh, I'm looking forward to see John Wick four this week. So there you go. Yeah. <laughs> bit of mindless violence as opposed
0: to people <laughs> flying around in capes. Let's move on to this big collection that, that, that that's been found. I mean, the great hope, I suppose, uh, from a lot of people who were listening at the time and their comments on various forums, and thank you everyone for your comments uh, as well, mm. is that it contains uh, missing material. Now, that's all predicated on a on a culture in Australia and obviously in Britain of not retaining um, this material at, at at that time. So, Jason, as someone who has a deep interest in popular culture. And media what do you make I mean some would call what the BBC what ITV what even the commercial networks and even the ABC here in Australia have done a, a form of cultural vandalism what, what do you make of the whole missing episode uh field industry uh, what, what do you think well look
1: look there's a, there's a few things to say on this so yes I mean obviously as a media academic um, particularly someone who values media history and 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 you know, actually having access to those those original um recordings, um, you know, it is a form of cultural vandalism from our perspective. But I think at the time, television was seen as a disposable product. I mean, mm. you know, it, it wasn't meant to be. Certainly the idea of even, even videotape or or um, DVDs or actually making a a profit (laughs) from from actually um, commercialising content and and selling it in a packaged format. Was that far beyond what um, the BBC or the ABC or any other Um, networks would have had at the time, that there was just no conception of the value of what was being lost. And of course, if you were to talk to people in the archives of these institutions at the time, they'd say, well, well, we were doing the right thing. We were trying to hang on to these news reports or, you know, this recording of this this sporting event and things like that, because that was how they valued culture at the time. It, It comes back to my earlier point that that not the popular culture was necessarily devalued, but it wasn't seen to be as important as the big cultural events. And, of course, the great irony is those big cultural events are preserved in any number of ways, not just through kind of television recordings, whereas an episode of Doctor Who only existed as an episode of TV. Therefore, if you don't keep that, it's very hard to to maintain it. So I think from our position, of course, it's it's it, it's very much a, a form of cultural vandalism and you can only think of of the loss and the lost shows we have um you know that that just haven't been retained um but but I think from the perspective of the time they probably thought they were doing the right thing and you know it comes down to whether you can judge someone another age by by your standards. So as much as I'd love to have complete runs of of Doctor Who and Adam Adamant and all sorts of 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 British telefantasy series particularly um, the reality is we don't, and people at the time would have thought they were they were doing the right thing. That said, I think the exciting thing is that it really points to the the origins of fan culture when you've got these dedicated fans who are recording things off air, and that's what we have in place of the the kind of original telecast in some cases. That to me is is also exciting in its own way to think that that level of fandom was there. That, that embrace of new technology as it was at the time was there and that's mm. what we have. So it's it's a double-edged sword. It's probably not the, the straightforward answer you were hoping for, but I think, you know, of course it feels like cultural vandalism to us, but at the time television was disposable, pop culture was particularly disposable, the people making those decisions thought they were making the right call and obviously we'd all be, be howling them down now and saying no if we were there. <laughs> that's, that's where we find ourselves.
2: It's interesting, though, because like Doctor Who, we don't, obviously don't, don't have a complete run where Star Trek you do. Mm. And to me and a number of people find it much more interesting that I know it's awful that they don't exist, but the fact that they don't exist actually gives us more interest in it. You know what I mean? And, and there's yes. always like, oh, what if the graphic came back? Oh, we've got this material, this material. Did it actually look like this or was it something else? So it's those guessing games in terms of what that that material was like on its transmission, as opposed to Star Trek, where you've got it all on tap. And and that's actually more disposable, really, than Doctor Who was back then and other tele-fantasy shows as well, mm. because you're not taking notice of it. Yeah, look, I think you're right. I mean,
1: part of the great attraction, I think, at least for me as a fan of Doctor Who, and I'm sure for you know, talking to other fans, it's it's a common thing, is that notion of this enormous scope that Doctor Who has, um whether it's it's even whether it, that the episodes do exist um but you just haven't seen them at that point when they're on TV and then of course now with the DVD runs mm-hmm. and things you've got more of an opportunity and even the reconstructed stories but that idea there's always something more of Doctor Who out there to discover and explore I think is a big attraction to it and I mean I I remember you know devouring the the target novelizations of the Dalek master plan and just mm. trying to imagine you know that that particular those dele- those alien delegates gathered together with the Daleks now I'm sure the BBC budget is nowhere near my imagination but then that, <laughs> that kind of you know really interested me and sustained me and I mean the the joy of kind of discovering Patrick Troughton as the doctor and how wonderful like The episodes we have of his are and the mm. reconstructions even are was a revelation to me. I mean, Patrick Troughton, you know, I, I was kind of like just a, another doctor to me. He certainly wasn't up there with John Pertwee and Tom Baker, but actually being able to discover that. And that's, I think, part of it. You're right. Part of the excitement with Doctor Who is that there's always that next discovery and the mm. fact that some of it doesn't exist. Um, you know but maybe out there is even more exciting it's you know it's it's kind of going back to Russell T Davies as the as showrunner kind of creating these moments of excitement week to week I mean it's it's almost part of Doctor Who's history and, and future isn't it that we might discover another episode here and suddenly there'll be a great revival of the Macra Terror again or you know <laughs> or we'll be rediscovering these these old classics so I think that's that's part of the excitement with Doctor Who. You're right, in a perverse way, that's what that's what interests people.
0: The material that you've taken custody of, Jason, um, what 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 about it, or the prospects that it offered to you, interested you? I mean, why take on, you know, a truckload, literally, I suppose, of audiovisual material dating back, I suppose, to the early to mid 1970s, up until today?
1: Well it's it's interesting on probably on three three folds I mean part of it is that that you know media history is really important and it's something that clearly we have the National Film and Sound Archive in Australia which does a good job of preserving that material but accessibility to the material is still relatively hard in many cases so Mm. it's a wonderful opportunity particularly for our students um, and we'll talk more about the projects later on but for our students to be immersed in that kind of media history so you know, whenever you see that there's a, a massive collection of tapes and certainly nothing on the scale of this <laughs> that I've seen previously, but, but a massive collection of tapes, you're always interested because you think, well, well, you know, what is in there that that hasn't been kept? Because it's the ephemeral stuff that, that is the most valuable. The, the second part then I think comes into more this discussion where you start to think, well, that period of time was interesting for Australian TV. There's a lot of interesting American content and, and British content that's on there, of course, being a Doctor Who fan, you think, well, maybe there might be something there um, or even there could be interesting episodes of Countdown that people mm-hmm. haven't seen or or other examples because, again, Australian TV has not been as valued um, in many respects despite the, the good works of the National Film and Sound Archive. So I think there's there's that possibility. And then the third one really at the end of the day is if it turns out that, that everything we knew about this collector and their collection is wrong and they actually were an avid AFL fan and we just have hours and hours of AFL games. Um, you know, even if that's all we had, we would still have the advertisements. And yeah. that that is a great source of value in and of itself because advertising tells you so much about a culture and about a, a period in time. So, there's kind of a, a triple value in this for me that, that you know, a, d- a diminishing series of returns, I think. If it's all AFL, I'm going to be very disappointed. But, <laughs> but you know, I'm sure I wouldn't be alone in that. But I think that there's that that possibility of it being incredibly rich. But even if it turns out not to be um, that substantively exciting, you've still got the, the ads, you've still got potentially the voiceovers, mm. the, the bumpers, all these sorts of things. And that's the ephemeral stuff which is lost. And that's, that's exciting to see what's, what's on there.
2: Potentially news reports of the day as well.
1: Yeah. 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 So you'll get that, that kind of breaking news and news updates, all these mm. sorts of things. So yes, that's where the value is. It's, it's kind of when we talk about um, television studies, we used to talk about the flow of TV before streaming, that notion of the TV programmer that would decide that, you know, this moment of TV flowing to the next, flowing to the next was a great mm. way to get your audience together for the night. And that's, a concept we don't have as much because everyone's sort of become their own program director now and that they can go from watching something on Netflix or something on ABC to something on free-to-air, to you know, going off to Amazon Prime or whatever else, and then they can put in their DVD. And, and that's how they have a night's viewing. They're no longer dependent on what they're given. But that notion of flow is still really interesting and really important because it does kind of point to how a culture responded to to tv and what they valued as important at the time so that's an exciting concept for students too that have grown up in an era where it was purely what what they did uh, what they chose to do it's interesting to think of tv as something received as well That it was something which was predetermined for them so that's that's kind of educational in in a positive sense um as well that they can sort of experience tv as many of us experienced it during that 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 kind of broadcast era
2: and it was more dog-eat-dog dog back then in terms of that scheduling, wasn't it, where you had the, the our commercial stations where, as you said, their hours of power, as it were, lined up against each other. Yes. You so see, he would become dominant, you know, and they'd, they'd purposely hold back shows, you know, six months of America and have them starting in February over. It just, you think about it now, that wasn't that long ago. It's completely shifted into this, as you said, do-it-yourself scheduling.
1: Yeah, and I mean, particularly Australian networks were quite fascinating because they... Often had relationships with the American um, broadcast industry, so Channel Nine obviously had a long-standing relationship with with Warner Brothers. Channel Seven with Disney. Channel Ten um, they revived their fortunes because they had a relationship with the Fox Network when it first started, and it really became this kind of really, I mean, yeah, TV in Australia or Australia rather was described as one of the best places. To watch TV in the world back in the nineties because we got everything. So we got the HBO shows of a night, you could watch Sopranos and Sex in the City and and all these things that at night. I mean the, the the great rumor over the years is that Kerry Packer was a big science fiction fan. That's why you got the kind of late night scheduling of the Star Trek series and and Buffy and things like that, counter-programming that then on seven. So so we always had a wide range of TV. You know, the TV schedulers in those years were gods because they they very much made the determination on on you know what would keep someone you know, with Channel 9 or with Channel 10 for the night. And they, you know, they their whole careers depended on getting that alignment right. And and in the case of Channel 10, I mean, you know, we, we talk about Channel 10 now being in in, in potentially entering receivership and in, in trouble again. And Channel 10's always been that network over the years. But that was very much the case in the 90s where it looked like Channel 10 would, would disappear and essentially become a, a movie-only network. And it was their purchase of... Um, some Fox programs, untested Fox programs, The Simpsons, The x Files, and they got Seinfeld in a trade with, with Channel 9 that really, you know, saved them. So, I mean, it was three American shows which turned that whole network around. So, it, it was a very different time. And as you say, not that long ago, I mean, we're talking about probably the early 2000s before things started to to radically change in that space.
0: Let's talk about practicalities, I suppose, uh, for, for a moment. I mean, how will the utilisation of this material be integrated into the projects at the University of Canberra, Jason? I mean, who's going to be examining the tapes? What methods are they using? I mean, how are they going to be using it? Do you have players? Because some of, these, some of this material is, you know, older than me and that's ancient, basically. I mean, and how long do you think it'll take to work through uh, this fabled truckload of material?
1: With the actual uh, recorded material, we got some players with it. Um, some of which are working. And, and you know, there's been a few a few people reaching out to, to me and the university sort of asking, well, when when is this sort of kicking off these projects? I'd love to be part of it and all this sort of stuff. And part of it has been doing a bit of an audit of what we actually need and what we have to to play the material. Um, so we're we're in the process of wrapping that up now with the view that we'll start to launch. Projects um, through our website, uh, the University of Canberra website, from about the middle of this year. So that's really what we've been doing. Because you're right, there's an incredible volume of material and, and variety of material that requires different playing systems. Um, so we've been seeing what works in what we've got there, what we need to get in, and equally how we set this up. Because obviously, um, you know, it's it's going to be a, a, a long-term project. Let me put it that way, or a series of projects to to get through the material. So. That's been the big the big first step, has been actually auditing the, the equipment needed and making sure we've got that. And, again, we're fortunate that um, in Canberra, we're close to the National Film and Sound Archive and, you know, potentially would have access to their equipment. We haven't had to rely on that yet, but it's nice to know that that's, that's there too, and so we'll be reaching out to our colleagues there at, at some stage to look at, at what we're doing in this space. In terms of working through the material, I mean, that's one of the reasons why... Um, having it as a a university collection makes sense. It is a vast, vast collection um, of material that will take, you know, years really to get through in many respects. And this is why it lends itself to a variety of staff and student projects because simply going through that many hours of recordings, uh, not knowing exactly what it is you're going to stumble across means that, that, you know, you need a lot of eyes (laughs) on this working through it. And that's where, as I say, it's possible that um, certainly uh, for our students, it's an opportunity to engage in a form of media research that they may not be used to but is still highly valued, which is actually going through media content, identifying what's there and then drawing some conclusions from it. So our our early projects we're proposing from about the middle of the year will be probably more at the honours levels. They're year-long projects which would be basically uh, media literacy and media content analysis going through a selection of tapes. And we'll try and kind of gather those together as much as we can into into the groupings from, from you know, the indications we have, which range from some detailed notes on some of the tapes through to very little on a lot of others um, into some sort of um, array. And then the students will work through those tapes um, and kind of start to talk about what it is they're seeing, that relationship to culture. So the idea will be that they'll probably be the best part of six months of kind of uh, analysis of what's on the tapes, which will also provide us with a guide to what's there. And then that will be followed up by kind of an exploration of how that connects to the culture of the time and what that means. So they'll have a complete project over the course of that year And we'll also start to have a a catalogue of the material that's actually on these tapes emerging during that time. Students will have some training in how to do that media analysis too, what to look out for in terms of dates and and indications of time and period, as well as having a bit of a list of things to keep an eye out for, to be honest, too. You want to make sure those kids aren't
2: got on the label Doctor Who rubbish and throwing it in the bin. You want some (laughs) like We've been there before. We just need some sort of supervisory eyes on this to make sure that... uh, you know, nothing's been overlooked.
0: I'm just interested, um, does the fact that this material exists and is in the hands of the University of Canberra, did that open up opportunities for, for this sort of coursework? Or even if you hadn't had this material, would you have still been able to do the same sort of coursework but with, you know, different, perhaps more modern material? It would be
1: different and it'd be more modern material and that's where I think the fact that it is removed from the students um by by decades um by many decades makes it more interesting in terms of a a process because i mean as i said that the, the modern era of tv is so different to the, these timeframes so going up really to the early 2000s and i think it's an opportunity for students to understand more around programming and flow and and the cultural ideas at the time um i think yes we we can do this type of analysis with modern television but it's, it's not really as rich in that way because it's, it's kind of that um, almost that, that process of estrangement where they're taken out of the location and the time zone that they're comfortable in and presented with something quite different. That's what makes it, makes it rich and also encourages that research and reflection because they are then researching a different period of time as well. So in answer to your question, yes, we, we could do those types of projects, but not at this scale. Um, and, and secondly, I think it opens itself up to longer-term projects. So as I say, we'll launch with the honours sort of ones because they're relatively simple to, to open up, um, and then we'll look at exploring masters and PhD level ones as well as we start to work through the material. And it is it is worthwhile noting that that part of this kind of six months setup, which ultimately it'll be before we actually launch this. Um and open it up to to students and and you know the, the broader public, if if there is that interest there, um you know, basically we'll be pro- producing checklists of things to keep an eye out for as well. um, and we have um, a range of cultural historians at the University of Canberra and digital archivists as well as well as dr who fans um who are who are part of this sort of staffing group too that will be able to provide um, information around that. So, there will be very clear briefing packs for all our students going into this. Um, it, it's more to make sure that, um, as I'm sure your, your listeners will appreciate as well, the students have a project out of this as well. So if it, if it does turn out that they're, they're not the student that finds the, the missing episode of, of, of Doctor Who in this particular way or, or Countdown or something else, that they still have a valuable project in and of itself.
0: Would you say that this material is unique within um, the media space, uh, you know, in terms of education in Australia? I mean, has the University of Canberra got a leg up on all the other you know, universities in Australia that, that deal in similar courses? I mean, it, it sounds like you've got a really rich and vibrant um, we, you know, look into the past that perhaps other universities may not have.
1: Yeah, exactly. I mean, these these kind of archives are incredibly rich when you find them. And certainly I've never encountered an audiovisual archive like this. Um, our colleagues at the National Film and Sound Archive have said something similar, that this is an incredible volume of material that they really haven't seen this scale either. And I mean, you know, that they should know out of everybody. So, yes, I think it's it's an incredible um, body of work uh, for the students and staff that that you know is relatively unique i mean to, to find someone uh, a collection like this by someone who has been so dedicated to to recording um so much interesting material or what looks like interesting material um certainly in the australian context is incredibly rare and i i haven't i haven't encountered a, another collection like this and i'm unaware of colleagues that have either so obviously it was tremendously exciting for us and just such a a great kind of bringing together of the university's strengths um, in kind of cultural history, in media and comms, and with that connection to the National Film and Sound Archive as well. So, I just want to also reassure your your listeners that I mean, you know, we we very much appreciate the privilege that we have in having this material, and we'll treat it with the respect um, that it's it's very much deserves uh, to go through it carefully. So. We're, we're very much aware of what treasures could be there but as I said even without that kind of treasure it's an incredible um, view into the past and into Australian culture and history and that is unique in the
0: in the academic environment Obviously the focus I suppose is on the coursework the honors uh, honors portion of someone's uh, course but I mean uh, you mentioned the national sound and uh, film and sound archive as you as you and your students work through this material and as they, catalogue it and record it and and and, uh, and so forth uh, how do you if you do how do you intend to share your findings um to the broader community uh, even even if that broader community is a couple of hundred uh you know uh, quote-unquote nerds uh, who are interested in this <laughs> sort of thing outside outside the university space itself
1: yeah we've talked a lot about that because obviously as i say you know we, we've mentioned this so many times during this this interview, but I mean, the volume of material is so large that it will take a long time to get through it. So part of the project too is to generate interest in the project because we really want to see more students and, and as I said, opening up other project opportunities even for the general public to be part of this. So so part of that generation of interest is sharing what we find. And we've already talked about... um, some you know uh, social media channels and that that can highlight um, some of some of what we discover. And obviously, we'll have to respect um, IP and, and copyright that, that people have uh, in this in some of this material. But equally, we can rebroadcast some of this for academic purposes, and particularly um, some of those sort of interesting, unique elements. We'll be doing that, and we'll be providing kind of a running update. Um, and, and again, we've talked about different ways to, to do this of what we find so so my hope would be that catalog of material will become public as we kind of release it so people will know uh, what's what what what's in there actually and what um what is valuable and what what we've discovered and and you know it could be um in the case of, you know, a recording of Star Trek, for example, it could be some of the ads that ran during that time or the, the voiceovers that that happen, or the, or the bumpers between the the ad breaks and seeing what they look like in that in that kind of Australian context. So certainly um it, it's important to us that we share uh the, the you know what what's on here, um, partly to share it to to educate the audience of, of what's out there as part of that that notion of of opening people up to that notion of cultural history, partly because it generates interest in the project. And, you know, the more eyes, the more people we have, the faster we will move through this material as well and actually discover what's there. And then thirdly, um, because I think there have been questions in the past about accessibility to to some media materials. So it's a a wonderful opportunity to do that as well and make that catalogue public and, and let people know that this, you know, this will become a resource that people can access and use once we know what's on it. And so um, that's that's kind of the exciting second step with this is that we will have this incredible archive of material
0: um, that will be accessible to people. Your main conduit to the community in terms of what you your your students find would be through the website. I think uh, you mentioned before. Is that correct?
1: Yes, yes. So we we we'll have obviously the University of Canberra website, and we can we can create uh, websites off the off the back of that, and also social media channels would be what we'd be doing in that space. But we have been looking at obviously we will advertise the projects through the main University of Canberra site. But as students and staff take up those projects and start to work through the material, we'll start to provide those materials in a, through our social media channels. And then, you know, if, if the demand is there, which I'm certainly hoping it is, then we'll actually have a kind of separate um, website that would be part of the University of Canberra, but would be devoted to this project and would be um, publicising the catalogue as we start to build that, but also some of the clips and material we've found.
0: People who listened to our previous episode on this would have heard with, you know, increasing horror, the, the large volume of material that was actually thrown out before Aaron was able to uh, basically stop that. But even so, I mean, there is a, a lot... You've used the word vast amount of material that's come up to Canberra. I mean, in your your initial examinations of what you got, can you put a figure on the number of individual units, tapes, <laughs> reels that you've got? I mean, are we talking... Not, it, it's clearly... More than hundreds, is it into the thousands? It's, it's yes. much bigger than the thousands.
1: It would be well into the thousands, yes, yes. And these are long recording tapes. I mean, there are there are hours per each tape, so there are oh, really thousands of hours of material. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it is it is vast, and I, I certainly appreciate you know that and, and you know happy to take people up and see what we can do. But I mean, I know there are people, members of the public that have reached out. So you know, I, I'm happy to help. Yes, and that's right, but. People will be working on portions of this collection because it is it is so vast, and certainly, you know, it's it's tragic to think of what might have been lost. But, uh, you know, in the discussions I've had with Aaron as well, we sort of you need to focus on what's there exactly. Um, and, mm. and you know, there's there's going to be a wonderful array of material there. And um, that's that's what we're kind of focused on at the moment. But yes, it is it is thousands of of hours basically is is what we're talking about. So you know this will be a multi year ongoing project, and that's why we we want to build that interest in it. We want people to be engaged, and certainly we're open to you know people being part of the collection, visiting scholars and all sorts of things. You know people engaging in that way, but. It's important for everyone to understand this isn't, you know, something that even if people were putting, you know, eighteen hours a day in going through it, it's it's still going to take a very long time to get through this material. And the the actual cataloging itself of the material is variable. Let's put it that way. So some some tapes are marked. Um, I've got no idea yet if, if, if because i have been through all of all of the, even those, um, if if that actually matches the contents of the tape. But there are, you know hundreds to thousands that that aren't. So, you know, there's a lot of material here which we don't even know what it is until students and and staff start to work through it. So that's what, what the kind of challenge is and the excitement.
2: So you mentioned, Jason, that the students will be obviously going through the tapes and, and the general public as well. Will they be digitising this content as they're watching it? And you probably haven't thought that far in advance yet in terms of what's going to happen to it, but potentially when you finished in 2033, going through it all, <laughs> what will happen to those tapes? Will they sort of stay there or will they be handed back to the NSA for safekeeping? I
1: mean, they are an archive now that's part of the university. So, you know, again, to reassure everyone, when a university takes on a collection like that, it becomes part of the university collection. And similar to a number of museum collections, while it may not be visible all the time, it is always retained. They are now part of the university archive. And again, that's that's why we've taken this period of months to, to make sure everything is, is looked after and inputted into the university archive records that way. In terms of digitizing contents, a good question. I'll certainly welcome some thoughts on it. We've taken the view of working through the tapes in the first instance, seeing what's on. Them and then I suppose making some decisions around how much we digitise, how much we don't digitise. Again, it's a it's a question of volume, but um, that certainly would be would be a stage of the project. But it kind of for the next, and you know, you put the 2033 date on it, you may not be wrong. Um, you know, I mean, it's it's for the, for the next few years at least it will be around providing that catalogue of actually what's on there and going from there. And certainly very happy to collaborate with the National Film and Sound Archive and look at what we can do um, in terms of, of that material. But equally, my hope would be that the university would be able to provide some accessibility to those materials too in different ways and forms of screenings, et cetera, to open that up and also provide accessibility to the public, as I say, through social media channels and, and other options there. So so it will be retained in in, um, in those forms. But the actual archive itself is in itself of value. The fact that someone, the, the, the collector that sort of put all this together has actually gone to the trouble of putting it onto these tapes in this format is valuable. And it's important, again, to go back to that notion of media history, that we're interested in what's on the tapes, but our cultural historians are interested in the tapes. And in the recording equipment, and in that in that itself. So the collection is not just valued for what's on the tapes; it's valued for the fact that this actually exists in this format.
0: That's really fascinating. That the, there's that that a collection of physical objects in and of themselves have value, I suppose, cultural value or historical value.
1: Yeah, I mean, look, there's been some fantastic projects. A, a colleague of mine um, at the University of Cambridge, a wonderful project looking at how. Um, scientific collections were kept in in, in an assortment of, of boxes, everything from twisty boxes to something else. And those boxes themselves that housed the collection were interesting because of the, the choices that were made and the kind of cultural kind of uh, geography that they provided at, of, of various things at the time. So, yes, the, the physical um, materials themselves are incredibly interesting to us you know, the the way that the choices that were made around the way that some things were itemised and some weren't, that's all all interesting in and of itself. So it's important, yeah, it's just to recognise that that archive is as much about the materials... Um, themselves as, as actually what's recorded on them.
2: I think another fascinating thing with Jason, would observing what the student, what their reactions are while watching this material as they're going through the tapes. They smile or they just have their head in their hand going, oh my God, I can't believe they transmit, you know, love thy neighbour in the 70s. That'd be really fascinating uh, reaction to, to get from them in terms of what their observations were, what their thoughts were of, of television at the time in the context of how they consume media today.
1: Yeah, and it comes back to that earlier question of, yes, we could have done a project like this with current media, but, but it is so much more interesting to have the students confronted in that sense or reflective on the fact that you know cigarette advertising was was part of of growing up in Australia in the in the 70s through the 80s you know it was a was a big part and there were beautiful ads and then thinking about the way that was constructed I mean ideas in relation to to race to gender to sexuality and how they've changed over time as well so that's what's going to be I think a source of real interest is those connections and then I think there are the students that, that maybe are like ourselves. I mean, I you know often talk about the fact that I never saw an episode of Patrick McGowan's The Prisoner or the horror soap opera Dark Shadows for years, but I'd read about them in books. I'd seen the photos you know, you read about them in Epilogue magazine, stuff like that. So I'm also hoping that it will inspire students' interest in some some past media forms as well, and um, that they'll connect to series they wouldn't have otherwise um, been interested in in that kind of kind of way. So I think that's quite exciting too, that you are actually sparking an interest in um, some of those older media forms that, for whatever reason, have kind of fallen away or fallen out of favour. So. Mm. Is that kind of being confronted with a different age and a different time? I think that's really, really exciting. I mean, we know the students, you know, still get a kick out of someone using an old telephone or different fashions and things like that. Final
2: records these days, isn't it? I'm hip now, apparently.
1: Yeah, exactly. So I think that, you know, there's going to be great interest for, for students working through that. And, of course, I've mentioned a couple of times, too, that there will be staff, including myself, who will be looking at portions of the collection too because obviously there's going to be a wealth of material there that we're keen to explore too and it's important to know that because of the size of the collection we'll be working through in portions because that's as much as any person can do but we'll be providing those kind of guidelines for everyone engaging with the collection of what to look out for i've talked a lot about cultural value in different forms but obviously the possibility of lost episodes is front and center in in what we're doing
0: and on that score jason uh what are the protocols in place if you discover and your students discover missing material whether it be australian the uk what do you have anything in place in terms of you've discovered an episode of adam adamant for instance they know that they've discovered an episode of adam adamant (laughs) how does that get propagated up the chain to say the the actual original copyright holder jason you got to call robin myself first that's right yeah yeah.
1: so (laughs) obviously after i've spoken to you um we've all watched it together and there's a lot of whooping cheers and everything else then yes i mean Obviously, for Australian content, we are fortunate at the National Film and Sound Archive close by, so we've got a a good second pair of eyes around that who can also put us in touch with copyright holders. And, of course, for some content, that's quite hard. That's why I I hope I'm not sounding evasive when I talk about making that content available online, but obviously we have to navigate some of the copyright holders that do still exist and, and, in some cases, may not even be traceable. So we've got a good sort of sense check for us with the Australian ones. With the, with the kind of um, English and American content, then obviously we, we've got a few connections and, and and media bodies that we can go to there with that. I mean, it, it's fair to say that, you know, everyone will hear about it relatively quickly, that we know, no hiding anything away. I think it'll be a, a great moment. I think the interesting thing will be if something is found, who finds it? And you could have the, the interesting situation where... A, a student in their 20s who's never been the most devoted Doctor Who fan in the world such <laughs> front-page news because they've discovered a missing episode, but that's just part of it. But, yes, we we, we are putting protocols in place. And, again, that, that I hope explains to people why, you know, it has taken a while since the, the delivery of the collection to actually making it available for projects. We just wanted to get all of that in place before opening it up. In that
0: one. Jason that's very comforting that you've got those protocols in place for the future. Um, I'm sure we'll all be listening and, and, and even viewing the website uh, with keen interest uh, come the time that it goes live. On behalf of Mark and myself I'd very much like to thank you for coming on to the episode. It's really fascinating to hear uh, the sort of work that you do and how this, this, this collection will help inform it. Um, and your students for many years to come. So thank you very much for coming on. Thank
1: you both, and I mean, you know, yes, very, very happy to, to keep everyone looped in, and and also, as I say, if people want to reach out to find out how they might be part of the projects and things like that, very happy to have those discussions too. So it, it's an exciting time and a, and a great collection. So thank you both for having me on.
0: You've just listened to another episode of Forty Two to Doomsday, the podcast that loves talking about Doctor Who. We'd love to hear from our listeners. Please drop us a line at forty-two to doomsday at gmail.com. We can be reached at facebook.com forward slash forty-two to doomsday. If brevity is your game, we can be found on Twitter at forty-two to doomsday. Please check out our blog, forty-two to doomsday.wordpress.com where Mark and I occasionally have something interesting to say. Aside from iTunes, you can listen to us via Stitcher and Player FM. If you enjoyed listening to us, leave a review on iTunes. As always, thank you for listening. Have a great week. We'll speak with you again soon.